do we do we do a clap? I'm gonna cl- I've done a clap on previous. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I've never done that before. I I don't know. I usually just fiddle around with it in Audacity until everything sounds like it matches up pretty well. Well, I well, mean, if that works for I, you. I mean, I've never <laughs> I've never actually edited it. It's just been the editors who requested the clap. So. Oh sure. Man, yeah. That's smart. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's try it. Um. I, I, how do how do they do it? You, Sam? Well, you, you you count it in, but it's just a good way to see that everyone. Yeah, because it's has, loud enough, so it registers, time. and then it's just like, okay, oh, that's cool. where the clap is. All right, yeah. let's do it then. Uh, on go. Three, two, one, go. It wasn't all at once, but it's close enough. It, it was not. Yeah. <laughs> that'll be <laughs> that'll be fine. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sufficient. Yeah. So the the candied chestnuts thing. Um, I mean, there are like multiple bags of them consumed in this. Yeah. I don't know how you would count that. Mm-hmm. An estimate of like, okay, how many chestnuts could you hold in a bag? And yeah. my answer would be probably around 10 at most. Hmm. Um, I mean, like as a snack, they're pretty, they're pretty good to just carry around. Uh, if you're going on like a long trip or something, they're incredibly nutritious and filling. Um, they sure. last for an extremely mm-hmm. long time. So, you know, if you have a small bag of perhaps 10, you could go on like a two day walking trip and be set. You know, and that that fits into a thing that I think we're going to talk about on this episode and probably going forward is the weird thing that happens with size in this series. I was just going to say just how difficult it is to figure out uh, like how big a thing is compared to another thing in right. this world. <laughs> I mean the the mice eat a lot of goat cheese. Well, and so the so the question becomes do they have like mice-sized goats? No. Or do they have one so. goat and it takes like a whole crew of them to milk the one goat? No, this is the thing about the the cheese and the things that he's referring to as goat's milk and like when he refers to cream, apparently there was like an interview that he did once where um because, like, they don't really mention having cows. They mention horses. Horses are a right. thing that exist, and, like, the the animals themselves are people size in relation to the horses. But they don't keep... Oh, are they? Yeah. No, because... But what about Clooney's... What if, because in this book, I guess it's not been entirely All right, hold on. Right? Let, let Melly finish. We, we're going to get into the, the actual yeah. plot of the, of the book in a little bit. Yes. It gets extremely weird. But, okay, so in an interview, he was just like, yeah, they don't have cows and they don't have goats. What they have is, like, a... Um, like a plant sap that sort of resembles a milk and you can make cheese out of it. <laughs> and it's like, wait. <laughs> if I'm going to be like cooking as true to Redwall cooking as I can, I'm not fucking doing that. <laughs> you can't generate a perfect vegan cheese substitute. <laughs> yeah, no. Welcome to the very first episode of the Red Wall Podcast, uh, which we hope will be your socialist resource for Brian Jakes' Red Wall series. Uh, we're going to talk about the politics of the books, the food, uh, the racism, the religion. There's so much to talk about. Uh, I'm Matthew Hodges. I'm joined by my co-hosts, 
uh, Sam and Melly. Sam and Melly, you want to say something about yourselves? Hi, I'm Sam. Um, famous for just about nothing. I <laughs> haven't read all the books in probably, God, it's probably been 10 years since I really got into the books. So I find, so I sat down and I reread my wall again for this, and I'm excited to work my way through it. What was your first exposure to the book, Sam? I think I think I got a, a really beaten up secondhand copy of Redwall when I would have been maybe eight or nine. Yeah, and then I just worked my way through them basically because the my library had pretty much all of them, and I was at an age where I just worked my way sort of shelf by shelf through the the children's section of my library and then the sure. teen section of my library. Um, yeah, no, it's really important to me. It was a I I I kind of read all of them over the course of about a year until I caught up to where they were at. And then I, yeah, then I, then I kind of left it. Yeah. I used to take them with me to uh, boy scout camp. Uh, and I, I would have like one or two of them with me. It, you know, the camp lasted maybe 10 days or so. So you had just enough time to read through like one or two of these books. And I remember sitting out there like post afternoon merit badges, uh, I'd find some quiet spot to read and just like cry to myself because the food that was being described sounded so good. And I knew that even <laughs> once the dinner bell rang, it was just going to be like camp food slop, uh, like nothing close to what they eat at Redwall. Um, I mean, yeah, uh, the food in this is it's it's pretty legendary, the stuff that he describes. And I think that it's like kind of the parts where he goes into the most detail. And it's certainly why I'm excited to revisit it, because like. I had um, a similar experience, except for I was in the library because, like, I didn't go outside as a child, um, really. And <laughs> um, <laughs> I would just, like, hang out inside of the library at school and uh, during recess and things like that. And I went through all the books, like, multiple times. Um, but I remember all of the, like, the feasts were the thing that really drew me in. Um, I wanted to know more about like what these interesting things tasted like. And so I'd go home asking my mom to make things like, um, like a poached fish or, um, like, you know, something like a, a mulberry pie or something like that. Um, sure. Honeyed oat cakes. Dull cot pie. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just the answer was always very like where did you hear about these things obviously no um <laughs> and so i want to cook them that's yeah that's the the reason that i'm here and i'm pretty excited about it absolutely okay so for this episode uh, i guess we're just gonna as the podcast goes on we're just gonna do one book a month and i think we'll go in publication order and the very first one published was of course the titular red wall the legend begins. Um, the legend begins. Uh, does someone want to do a, a quick recap of the plot of this one? So it looks like Redwall was published originally in 1986. So I was two when this came out. I mean, okay. So so the world of Redwall, we're starting in Meteorize with Redwall. Um, you know, it's, it's several hundred years after the legendary uh, warrior Martin the Warrior. Uh um, who like saved and founded Redwall and saved a bajillion people from starvation, um, founded the Abbey and where they all live. And um, there's a, 
a, a farm in the countryside nearby. There's a um, a forest. There's called, a church. There's a church. There's a forest called Mossflower. Well, I mean, like, um, no, that actually, I mean, it makes sense in terms of mm-hmm. having the church outside for people and villages to actually go to rather than inside where the monks would generally just um, do daily prayers and things like that in there and then be open for larger feasts. Um, like, in, by comparison to what it would look like historically, obviously this is, it's um, an abbey that's filled with large uh, animals that aren't supposed to be large, like mice and badgers. <laughs> right. Well, and we're, I, I, th- I think we are going to end up talking about, like, exactly what is the structure of Redwall, because it doesn't seem to be a religious order, exactly. It, mm. it is, though, but it's not, like... I mean, it's an order of something, and it's like a, it's like an atheistic religious order. They have a- nothing. It's not. It's not stated. There's no. There's no religion except for, to some extent, veneration of the past. Like all of the iconography is of Martin. That's what we have described, right? right? There's there's nothing outside of that. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I can't. Re- I can't yeah. remember if there's a metaphysics later on. I'm I'm, so, yeah. I'm excited. So you've got this. Uh, so you've got this abbey um, that's occupied by an order. And they're very peaceful and they take in travelers and offer uh, assistance to anybody in need in the community. Uh, And then they get attacked by uh, a roving band uh, under the under the leadership of the warlord Clooney, Clooney the Scourge, so named because his his long whip like tail, he scourges his enemies. Clooney is interesting, right? I think he's described as maybe having come off a Portuguese ship, which oh, that's implies right. this, which implies a lot of very interesting things <laughs> about the implies world. Implies at least the existence of Portugal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and there's, and I think, and, and not to not to, to harp on this, but I do think that it's that the something like two hundred rats are described as being in a cart. They're they're all in this hay cart with a horse, right? Um, Maybe I'm misremembering. And then one of the, and I remember one of the rats is like tasked with going up and spurring the horse on. And then he's, of course, trampled underneath the, the hooves yeah, of the horse. It, because it that's says, it, Clooney says, like, the horse is slowing down. Jump up there and bite him. And then he lands on the horse's back and the horse panics and, like, you know, freaks out. And he yeah. gets, that guy gets crushed under the, the wheels of the cart and, while Clooney laughs. <laughs> As happens to sort of all of Clooney's seconds over the course <laughs> right. of the book. <laughs> the wages of evil are are, are not rewarded. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's like a full-size, it's like a human-sized horse to... And a human-sized cart. Inside. Yeah. Uh, but, and then also, like, there's the question of the scale of the Abbey itself, which is, it's claimed to have been built by um, you know, Martin and all of his friends um, out of, you know, this red stone that's from a quarry that's very far away Um, and it's it's large enough where like, you know, going on an adventure to the top of it is going to take a day Um, Mm -hmm. and also like there's an entire nation of people living up there (laughs) right (laughs) Mm -hmm. like people birds (laughs) Yeah, so so in in summary, uh, Clooney the Scourge is attacking Redwall Abbey. Young Matthias, our novice who becomes the hero of the story, has to go on this quest to find the legendary sword of Martin the Warrior, which takes him 
way up into the abbey where he meets the sparrow people and we'll talk about that and then he has to leave again and he goes and uh goes to the quarry meets a bunch of people on the way ends up fighting a giant snake doesn't actually do anything to help with the defense of the abbey and then he comes back like at the last minute and saves everybody because uh Clooney the scourge has finally like breached the the abbey walls and is about to start executing people uh, when Matthias and all of his new friends show up too, and and that's that's more or less the plot of the book. Yeah, yeah. And then I mean, like that's kind of the best part about the book in general. Um, like as I was rereading it again for the first time in a while, um, I read them in in college. I just went back and read them. Um, yeah. But yeah, like going back and reading them now with sort of a more adult understanding of of narrative and literature, it's really awesome because it's just there's no frills there's like um you know things just happen in sequence um there's not too much time spent on (laughs) motivation there's no tolkien-esque like (laughs) waxing poetic about the surroundings or like how old a tree was or if anybody's cousin remembers its name um it's just like you know then there's a snake and you go and you talk to the snake and the snake has the sword and then you get the sword from the snake and you go back and you defeat the bad guy and then everything's okay and right <laughs> it's kind of like a, a, a pre-video game logic to it yeah even though it's written in 1986 oh, where you like right. go to the place and you get the thing so you can go to the next place and get the thing and um like you know after it's just coming off reading like something like the name of the rose by umberto echo it's like you know you want something that's less of um let, like the riddles are just so simple and that's a that's another story that takes place inside of an abbey like and mm-hmm. you know trying to find the secrets of that abbey and this one sure. it's like well all you have to do is sort of look at where the w's are parallel to each other <laughs> right and yeah <laughs> And characters just pretty much explicitly state their motivations. Yeah, exactly. You know, Cloody is like, I'm here to murder you all. Yeah. Um, And and that's if he bothers to talk about motivations at all, because you have uh, uh, Matthias's love interest, Cornflower, who's just like (laughs) lovely, simple Cornflower, who basically her role in the entire book is to be pretty, be a motivation for Matthias, and at one point, she does burn down the siege tower that Clooney's horde has, like, rolled up to the side in the cart, uh, which, again, human-sized cart, not a mouse-sized cart. It's rolled up to the walls of the Abbey. Right. Which makes me feel like the Abbey is sort of human-sized, because there's a, there's the description of uh, Matthias climbing the walls, and he's looking down, and it's very much like a skyscraper description, right? Right. And seeing these, like, ant-sized people on the ground <laughs> yeah. beneath him. Well, there, no. There's so many confusing size things in this. Like the later on, they get to he he goes and has to talk to the the cat uh, Julian Gingivere, uh, who lives in a barn like far away. And yeah. there's a big owl who also lives in the neighborhood who used to roost in the rafters of the barn. And so then it's like, who built this barn? Is this a because the owl is described as being huge, like can eat yeah. a mouse or a shrew in one bite. So an owl roosting in the rafters of a barn, you picture a human-sized barn. I feel like humans are definitely implied in this book in a way that I think they stop being implied later on. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, yeah, I think that, maybe I think that he, he just... decides later, like, no, wait, hold on. This is just an animal. This is a world entirely populated by animals, but he doesn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Which is really, there's, there's kind of a, like a beautiful retconning there where he's just like, that makes things too hard, so I'm just going to forget that I did this. I'm going to ignore I mean, this. He could have yeah, gone the good. other way and said that this was uh, some sort of like post-apocalyptic fiction, you know, where mm. like the humans used to exist <laughs> and now they don't anymore. And now uh, you have smart mice and yeah. strange plants that create yeah, cheese. Right. The, the radioactive fallout turned them all basically sapient. And they form their own societies. Okay, explain that to a child. <laughs> yeah, that would have also been the worst possible ending. And that's, I mean, that's the one corniest. of the best parts. That's the way this book functions so well, is that he understands that his audience is feeble-minded children who are probably <laughs> drooling as they read it. Um, whose, like, biggest problem in a day is, like, you know, I, I don't want to put on my Sunday best for a church. Like that's, that's the mindset that he has for his audience. It's not, you know, (laughs) 20, 30 something uh, communist adults. Um. (laughs) Well, we, and and, and I'm glad that you brought it back around to that Millie, because we did promise our audience that this was going to be a discussion of some uh, like broader societal themes in here. And I, I think that we have to have a discussion of, the the governmental structures that we see throughout this book. So you've got Redwall Abbey, you've mm-hmm. got Clooney and his horde, you have the Sparrow Kingdom, and then you have the Guasim, the Gorilla Union of Shrews and Mossflower. Hell yeah. And I think that there's a lot to pick apart in that. Uh, I, I'm going to push back a little bit. I'm going to say that I don't think Redwall is a religious order in any way. I think that they... They have a code of ethics that they adhere to, but they don't seem to have any kind of deity. They don't, uh, the way that you would expect a, a regular monastery or something to run, they don't seem to have, um, you know, vespers or uh, any kind of organized prayer. There's no mention of a, a sanctuary of any kind. They just have the big hall where they have parties all the time. I think that he hasn't decided yet. That, yeah, that's Honestly. it. <laughs> Like, it just, there's a lot of things that feel like the outline of a broader story that doesn't have important details like scale and (laughs) religious motivation or spirituality. Um, I mean, even looking at just the, the, the map at the very beginning, it's extremely simple. There's a main gate and a ditch and then a quarry where the rock is probably from and then a farm and a river and a wood. Like, right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, weirdly, they don't make much mention of any kind of like positive theology in this book, but the word hell comes up a lot. Like hmm. the the creatures in this story definitely have a concept of there being an afterlife and bad people go to the hell place. Yeah. I'm just I'm just thinking of the the is there, there's, there's a few I'll see you in hells, I think, from the villains. Right. From, like, villainous creatures. Yeah. I, I have a question, actually. This is not related to the religion or to the politics of it, but what was your favorite villain name? Because the names are really great. This is, I think this is like I a... I think Cheese Thief was awesome. <laughs> Cheese Thief is pretty good. <laughs> it's really good. Mm, um, Chicken Hound. Or Snarf. Who is Scrag? The, the Scrag? Scrag. The weasel that got kicked out of the tree. Oh, yeah. Poor also, Scrag. how big was the tree? Like, these are the... Yeah, it's a big tree. Like, I, it feels like it's a big tree. Yeah. They it feels like a human-sized tree. It takes them all day to climb it. Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, isn't exactly 
it, it's it's like they they have sort of the physical properties of humans in some situations, <laughs> and that right. it takes yeah. them a very long time to climb vertically. Yeah, right. Yeah, because uh, like at one point they decide that they're gonna they're gonna burrow under the walls, and all the rats are like, I don't know how to burrow. It's like that's not that's not rat behavior. <laughs> rats know how to dig. <laughs> He, he his understanding of, of animal behavior is, is <laughs> and, and and scale is sometimes a little loose. I think at, the, at at this one at least he gets, I think he gets more detailed. So um, at the very least, we can say that Redwall Abbey is a a mostly democratically run sort of commune. I mean, they they exist very communally, where it seems like everybody who is part of that community has a job. They all do it very happily, and the job goes to serve just the the general welfare. Is it democratic though? Is it's there not, any? I don't think it is because at the very end, like the what's his name, Abbot Mortimer. Abbot, Abbot Mortimer. Yeah, yeah. he Mortimer. appoints like the next abbot because he's dying, um, right? And so there's like a a clear line of appointed succession, um, but it has to be above like like within the order of the brothers themselves. And I don't think that they vote on that. Yeah, yeah no, they, they don't vote. You get the sense that there's a, a sort of, like, general acclamation for the choice, though. And that, like, well, this is, this all, is of these leaders, all of these leaders yes. kind of rule by general acclamation. Yeah, but this is, like, the utopian understanding of secession, which is, like, yes, of course, the, the leader chooses their successor, but also everyone agrees with them because the right. leader is, is wise and correct. Yeah, yeah naturally, sort of the, this is the, the second most wise and correct person who will only grow to be more wise and correct over time. Right, That's exactly. That's the natural... Yeah, it's the, it's the, the Aristotelian philosopher king, basically, yeah. is in charge it's of very, war. I think it's very Aristotelian, and, and you have this this very clear moment, which is sort of, which is honestly very um, to the point when the abbot says, "Okay, we're at war. I'm going to appoint like a war council. Now you're all in charge." Yeah. Right, and nobody which has is any very... issue with that. It's just the people no. that we've been talking to recently are now on the war council, including this teenager. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Matthias is the main character and clearly a teenager. And in the very first page, he's a doofus. And then he suddenly is like worthy of being taken seriously. Um, I mean, there is, there's like a metaphysics though there with, with Matthias. Cause it's, you, you have this, this scene where he speaks in the voice of Martin right. and the characters listen to him. He's not just a teenager and there's not really any real sort of metaphysics of transference here. No. It's just, there is Martin and then there's Matthias <laughs> And we're going to be very explicit that this guy well, is the inheritor. Yeah, and that that thing is never really explained either. How Martin somehow built all of these prophetic riddles into the place, like somehow knew that hundreds of years later there would be a threat to Redwall Abbey, and uh, I am that is, which is that's the riddle. It's just a uh, an anagram of of Matthias yeah. like is going to be the one to take up his mantle and like we you know we're one in the same for some reason yeah but like if okay again from the perspective of like a, ch- a literal child like like that sounds so cool <laughs> like you're not yeah. gonna really analyze <laughs> right. it in the way that we are where it's like well um you know is there really a deity that was able to like somehow conduit the spirit of Martin the warrior um into this like reincarnation in the form of matthias like um i know that i remember that in the other books there's like fortune tellers and seers who can see the future um and so there's like you know there's a 
a vague element of spiritualized magic that takes place out of the hands of the individuals themselves. Yeah. Uh, sure. And so, I mean, everything is just sort of going along according to a destiny track, which is one of my favorite things that uh, any author who uses, like, you know, prophecy or, um, you know, destiny as a as a major element in their storytelling. Well, yeah, you decided it was going to be that way, like, Brian. <laughs> like, <laughs> of course there was a prophecy. You wrote it yeah. because you're the author. <laughs> So, like, yeah. you know, he's just God. That's kind of the halfway through the book. I was like, I'm going to stop questioning this because it's distracting me. And oh. I just decided, like, so, you know. Well, it very much is this ideal fantasy, right? Like, you're the kid who is bumbling and is struggling. And then suddenly you realize that you are the classic chosen one. And you have your, your, your buildings room in. And then at the end, you get, like, appointed a wife. By the abbot. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? It's like, you two are going to marry. And that's, like, what's what sounds more... What's more awesome when you're like a 12 year old that just to have this ideal life mapped out in front of you where you're the reincarnation of a hero and now you're a part of this like wonderful community. I mean, it, it yeah. does help that uh, Matthias and Cornflower at least had a couple of nice moments together where you get the sense that they actually do have those feelings for each other. Um, yeah. One thing I noticed uh, rereading was he makes a sex joke at one point. What? Um, he, I that. he He jokes about. Uh, it, I think it's like Friar Hugo is talking to one of the other mice and he's like, you know, like, oh, you just wish that you were out like playing like Tangled the Tail with like all those all those other girls. Or like, oh he's, he's, he's he's talking about sex. It's it's I, a sex joke. Gotta say, I am not into the I don't like that animal sex metaphor. I mean, I'm, they I'm clearly so are because that... they're producing offspring. And, like, I think... Oh, yeah, it's happening. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I and... have been a little concerned that we're going to end up with a whole bunch of furry fans uh, for this podcast. That's uh... fine, honestly. They're <laughs> people, too. If they want to do fan art for us, uh, do do the three of us as furries. We'll make it the, oh, the Twitter header. I don't like I, that. I'm to actually, I'm going to veto that one. Yeah, I'm not into that. <laughs> I don't want to know what but my have, persona is. <laughs> but I have a question. I have a question. Are I, I can only think of one actual family. That, sorry, there's two families. There's the dormice, right? And then there's the fox. And there's the, the church mice. Oh, there's the church mice. And then mm -hmm. there's the dorm. The is it the field mice or the dormice? And the squirrels. The squirrels are a family too. Yeah, there's also the squirrels. Oh, there's the field yeah. mice. There's the church mice. And there's, because mm -hmm. there's those. Um and then it's also heavily implied that, like, you know, in the Great Hall, they're able to fill it up mm -hmm. with yeah. people. So, like, um, even though we're only focusing on, like, individualized families that are part of the narrative, there's the implication that there's more than just seven families. <laughs> yes. Right. And, and again, yeah. we end up with this uh, this weird scale problem, right? Because uh, when, the, when the horde is coming... And Redwall knows it's under attack. They send out the the big sanctuary cry with the bell, and they take in what I think we're supposed to assume is hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, because every time the horde attacks, it's like oh, and then like a whole bunch of defenders got like cut down in their prime. Yeah, by... a bunch of people definitely die in it. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of death. It. <laughs> and there's broken and mangled bodies yeah you know right. like i'm like the whole the whole bit with the foxes like i honestly i love the whole fox plot 
in part because it, it's got a really fun bit on the magic with um, Sela like faking it while she's doing like perfectly good medicine for Clooney. Right. And she's doing all this, you know, like witchy stuff. And Clooney's like, you're a perfectly good doctor. I don't know why you're doing this. <laughs> right. Um, well, Sam, yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to circle back around to the, the foxes um, after a little bit, because there's some stuff mm-hmm. there to be said about uh, like race and um, sort of like racialized descriptions in this book, mm-hmm. which I think we need to get there. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do want to talk about some of the other governmental structures that we see, right? Because, uh, you know, Clooney is, he's the despot. He's the, the absolute warlord. And in fact, at one point, um, Jess Squirrel observes to herself, uh, what a difference between the antics of this rabble and the way the way in which the Abbey defenders went about their business of training. Jess observed that it was the contrast between slaving under a tyrant and voluntary cooperation that arose from determination and good fellowship. Which is just such, I mean, it's, it's such a, an explicit statement of his own politics coming through. Yeah, this is the point. This is the point of the book. These are right. these are the differences, and we have, a, and of course, we have a whole bunch of other groups of people, which are kind of absurd. I love Guasim. Yeah, they're the they're the best, obviously. The, but the, yeah, the, the like eco socialist anarchists, basically. Yeah. yeah, but I think to Brian, they're kind of ridiculous. Yeah, which is which is kind of sad because he's because everything everything aside from his sort of ideal like English countryside voluntary community is. Is, is kind of is kind of absurd, um, but yeah, it's yeah, this idea yeah. Because that... the um, the shrews are portrayed as being, I mean, they're 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 the guerrilla union of of shrews yeah. and Mosflower. For some reason, nobody knows they exist, even though they live like a mile away. Right. Um, Again, scale. How far is yeah. a mile for the mice? <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> What's a mass um, mile? <laughs> and and they do everything very democratically. And in fact, you see kind of echoes of uh, like Occupy Wall Street in there, right? Like whoever's holding the the stone is the person who gets to speak. And then they all take a vote on on everything. And eventually, Matthias just gets really frustrated with them, and he's like, "Okay, I'm out. Like I'm just gonna walk away from this whole thing." And then they come back to him, and they're like, "We took a vote, and we're you." Uh, unanimously behind you and then a little while later it's like we're not even going to vote on this we're just going to like follow yeah. Matthias like, right we're not going to go through this whole process again and just like drag it out for a child reader but like also I mean that's just a, a common theme um, of like you know basically what you just described is an end moot from Lord of the Rings absolutely it's exactly yes. the same thing where they all have to yes. get together and they have to talk about everything for an extremely long time until sure. the hero of that particular scene gets so mad that he leaves. Um, yeah. And then they come to him later, like almost immediately after with a decision. Um, and yeah. then, you know, later and there's something else happens. This is all, it's just verbatim yeah. what happens with the end. Absolutely. So many <laughs> and then they strong... charge into the den of villainy. Right, exactly. Right, yeah. And they into the quarry. soundly defeat them. <laughs> well, I was going to say, so many strong Tolkienian influences here, because Matthias's quest is essentially Aragorn's quest to get the sword, get the sword put back together, and then walk the paths of the dead. Which in this, instead of being full of a bunch of dead people, it's full of a giant poisonous adder. Um, but he's still, you know, he has to go underground in order to, like, come back up with the sword and with the leadership potential 
uh, that he had in him all along. Right. Um, yeah. Also, that's a, I mean, J.K. Rowling clearly lifted that from the second book of Harry Potter, The Chamber of Secrets, where he yeah. has to go down in underground to battle a giant snake so that he can get a special sword. <laughs> right. And he and he uses the sword he, to defeat the snake. Exactly. Same thing. It's yeah. all I don't know. Listen, I'm a regular Joseph Campbell over here. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about when he was in the belly of the whale. Um <laughs> uh, other yeah. other governmental structures. We've got the Spera, the the people yeah. who like the whole last civilization that lives in the not like above the bell tower, like above the entire abbey that apparently have nothing to do with anything that goes on on the ground, um, where you also have, like, a despotic monarchy, not unlike uh, Clooney's Horde, until the Mad King dies, and then they appoint a new queen. Yeah. Well, I think it's a sympathetic monarchy in a lot of ways, and that even in that even the Mad King is described by his subjects as being... Like, yes, but he's very strong, and it's kind of a little more complicated than Clooney, yeah. right? Life, it's... life has been good under him, by and large. He's just crazy. He just, yeah. like, occasionally, yeah. And they're all kind of portrayed in a in not very sympathetic light, I think. <laughs> right. A lot of the other sparrows are sort of, like, rowdy. And, and there's this really, like, horrif- there's this really horrifying paragraph which says that this, they're just constantly getting into fights with each other, and they're, for, like barely feeding their children they're all dirty they're just like scruffling around and it doesn't really get into this elsewhere but there's just this really uncomfortable moment right where we just this is like jack's idea of this failed culture yeah it's the it's um, the the civilized versus the uncivilized uh yeah people. right and that, any that sort of government so many times any sort of like government that exists or any sort of sort of society that exists outside of um you know like the monastery itself it's automatically tribal. Um, it's automatically like, you know, it, it can have funny aspects of being democratic or it has like one sort of centralized leader um, in terms of like, you know, the militaristic marauders under Clooney, like he's constantly appointing people to positions within, um, you know, his, his tribal style of military. <laughs> right. um, <laughs> Re- rest in peace, uh, Scrag, Kill Coney, Cheese Thief. Uh, yeah, yeah they all Kilconi. die. <laughs> they all die. Um, and, you know, it's it's supposed to be like a marauding, thieving horde, but also it's like 400 rats and weasels strong. So it's like enormous. So like it's its own society within itself, unless unless it had ties to somewhere else. But it doesn't. It's just 400 male characters wandering around being evil. One you know, fox. I was, I was going to bring that of, up, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, like, the, the Red Wallians, like, the Good Woodlanders, um, even the Spera, uh, are way hornier than the than Clooney's Horde is. Yeah. They're non-sexual. They, they seem to be completely non-sexual. And the reason I noticed that was because my edition of Red Wall has, I think, a typo in it um, where Kilconey is described with the pronoun she. And I was like, oh, is Kilconey a woman? Like, is that a female, I think a stoat or a weasel? But then it goes back to the he pronoun no. later. But that kind of that kind of tripped the thing in my brain. Like, they don't ever talk about women. Like, this well, whole... That's, that's kind of a good thing. Um, and 
I mean, it's definitely a good thing, but that's just one of the ways that, like, you know, if you're writing a children's book for children, you can find easy ways to fix things. Um, you know, if you're going to have um, a, a giant marauding horde, like, pillaging the countryside, you're probably going to have a lot of rape to go along with that, unless you just don't have it. And right, yeah. that's exactly what he did. He was just like, we're going to take out gender dynamics from the evil people. Um, and we're going mm-hmm. to take out any mention of sexuality. Clooney doesn't even want a wife. Usually they want to steal some wife. Um, sure. And there's none yeah, of Clooney's that. Villainy is, Clooney's villainy is very pure. Yeah. In a certain way. He's very straightforward. Um, <laughs> he just wants to, like, hurt things and take things. Yeah. And, um, and be in charge of things. That's, that's yes. his big motivation. He just wants yes. to be in charge. And pride. He doesn't want, he doesn't want to back down. Right. Um, and there's one really striking little like sort of familial dynamic is the fox is the foxes right because the young fox does not mourn his mother at all right it's this it's really it's really chilling he's he's he shakes off her body and gets ready to do his own little grift well and it's it's also highly problematic because they're literally described as gypsies at one point yes at, at more than one point they use that they oh, yeah. use the term for them like at least five times, um, and, and not just for the foxes, because I, I think uh, I think the Gwasim are described as a band of gypsies at one point. Um, so he's kind of using it as shorthand for like like wandering people. But with the foxes in particular, he plays into a lot of the sort of uh, societal tropes around like what the Romani people are like. They have lots of silk scarves and they try to grift people and. They don't yeah, really care about like when their it's, mom it's gets killed. Highly you know? racialized it, stereotypes, specifically the negative ones. <laughs> like, yes, right. Um, yes, just to characterize this entire. Well, I mean, it's not. It's just the two of them. But like, yeah, they they do weird witchcraft and magic, and right. you know, they're they're healers, um, and that's their benefit in the way that they've been able to survive without being a part mm-hmm. of a larger community for forever. And they're motivated entirely by shiny objects, like. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. interesting that they, but it, it, it's kind of interesting that they, that, that they are the only ones who do any real betrayal, like any actual betrayal without being under duress, right? They, that, that she bounces back and forth and none of the rats do this. None of the rats like exist outside of their capacity as just pure servants of Clooney's will. Yeah, they're, they're trying to climb the ranks, maybe, but they never yeah. think about, like, leaving. They never think about, like, defecting to the other side or anything. Yeah, um, the way that he adopts his horde to begin with is he's like, go around and just destroy their house and tell them to come with us. And then all of a sudden, they're, like, on board. Like, oh, this is right. the thing I do now. <laughs> Goodbye, yeah, my farm. Psyched. Like the weasels and the weasels and ferrets are pretty they're pretty into it yeah well and right? that it speaks to a very strange sort of uh like racialization that happens uh in redwall and i think as we go along we're going to find in most of the other books where you have there are certain creatures who are bad mm-hmm. and they have skill sets and there are certain creatures who are good and they have skill sets and like never the twain shall meet um, th- nobody knows anything about the moles other than they're good at digging, but the moles are happy to throw in their digging services because they like eating at Redwall, I guess. More so in this book than in other ones, the even he even makes it a point that nobody can even really understand the moles. 
Uh, even though they just speak in basically a, a like a, a vernacular, um, like Northern English accent or something. Um, it's, it's it says, interesting. O- says oi instead of I, you know? Yeah. The vernaculars are interesting. One thing that really struck me, which I did not catch previously, is that Kilconey has this cartoonish Irish accent. <laughs> is this, like, cartoonish oh. transliterated Irish accent? And obviously Kilconey is, like, a, a rabbit-killing joke. Right. Yeah. Um, but also, like... Kill is an Irish like place name suffix and name suffix. Sure, it's like Kilkenny and Kilqueeg <laughs> and these places in Ireland. God, that's so a good point. So there's just like this one Irish character who, of course, is utterly amoral and um, naturally. Yeah, and, oh, of course, yeah, and and I think that the rats are sort of very clearly like how to put it, the sort of the like urban working class in in some ways. There's yeah. like a way right. you can re- you can read them as like this this particular. Um, cultural group in England is versus the like, they're the chavs. Exactly, exactly. There's all these sort of chavs coming from their coming from their their boats from the continent. They right? have or tattoos. Coming from the city, Bless they do have tattoos. <laughs> um, a, a bunch yeah. of them just sit around in tracksuits, like squatting <laughs> and smoking cigarettes the whole time, which I thought was a weird anachronism in the book, but. <laughs> Who's manufacturing these tracksuits? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what's the supply chain here? Um, but what's really a really interesting thing is that there is there is like ra- racial um, like animosity within the ranks of Clooney's horde, right? Oh, sure. Like the rats are are worried about the the rats are worried about the stoats, and the stoats are like trying to advance past the rats, um, and it's like that's sort of it's 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 very there's kind of a an irony that the fact that he portrays like this racialization as solely a trait of the villains, but of course none of the good people would ever trust a rat. I, I think right. that it's intentional because like, you know, yeah. he can't just have this stark dichotomy of mice versus rats where like, you know, the, the racialist divide is that, you know, some individuals within a certain group can, are just naturally evil, which is obviously mm-hmm. the way that, you know, the story takes it, but it's about how they deal with those differences inside of their own groups where, mm-hmm. like, the the racialized animosity in, in the evil group of angry dudes. Um, and, but, like, within the Abbey Walls, like, there's no, like, hierarchy. There's no case system based on race. There's no, like, you know, they don't really mention... Um, you know, any animosity between like badgers and mice, um, that doesn't happen. So like the good people can settle their racial differences. Except for the fact that literally nobody ever bothers to learn the beaver's name. There's (laughs) one beaver that always is just referred to as the solitary beaver. Um, Listen, oh, this it's poor solitary really beaver. Sad. That's like the saddest thing. People die in this book. Like, you know, it's supposed to be sad when, um, the abbot dies, and I like wasn't sad at all. I was mostly just sad that nobody gave a shit enough to learn the beaver's name. Right. I mean, even at the end, because uh, the church mouse family, where uh, where Cornflower comes from, ends up moving into the abbey, and John Churchmouse, the father, the patriarch of that family, takes over from old Methuselah as the new like gatekeeper and record keeper. And even in his records, he's like, "Oh, it sounds like the." 
like the October Nut Brown Ale must be coming along, given the the raucous laughter that I'm hearing from the basement from uh, Friar Hugo and Ambrose Spike and that beaver. Who's always who always seems to be hanging around? This, this poor beaver. Yeah. You know, the, also, they're you, a keystone <laughs> species. They're very important they're ecologically. So, um, but yeah. Also, what a shitty historian. Learn the beaver's name. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. You have one job now, and like you know, at the very beginning of the book, um, John, the church mouse, um, you know, he's a very proud man. Uh, mm-hmm. who can't feed his family. And so that sort of like it brings into question what the agroeconomics of outside of the <laughs> abbey actually Absolutely. look like. Yeah. Um, I mean, the question is, is, do they like, and this is a thing which I don't think is made like explicitly clear, is it says they live in a church, but is this a church for animals? Or is this a person-sized church? Because there's definitely a person-sized barn. Well, at, at one road. point, at one point, Clooney slams his tail down and smashes the lectern. Oh, which implies damn. that it's like mouse-sized. Yeah, I missed that paragraph. Fascinating. Yeah, um, I mean the size the size thing is nuts, but I I love Melly's point that there there's a huge question as to what did the economics of this region even look like yeah. at this point? Um, yeah, because definitely inside the Abbey, it's very uh, like communalist. Outside the Abbey, you have people living in poverty. So what's going on? Like, how do people trade for things? Or, you know, you never get the sense that... Uh, it, it, actually, I'll take that back. At exactly one point, you get the sense that things can be traded for value. And that's when uh, Chicken Hawk, the fox, is walking around and just robbing everybody blind. And he's like, oh, here's a nice set of like gold chalices like those will be really useful you know but there's no banking system like there's no there there doesn't seem to be any kind of right there's uh, no economic hub and one would think that it would actually take place at the abbey but it clearly doesn't (laughs) right i feel like there are there cities implied i feel like they're I think we're gonna find out later. Like, oh, yeah. they've we're gonna learn more about this expanded universe. But like, in terms of just even just directly surrounding the Abbey, like, there's no there's no economic hub where where trade and any sort of market where like trade can actually take place. Yes, <laughs> I mean it, obviously. Yes. I mean based on based on Chicken Hawk, like apparently precious metals are valuable somehow to somebody yeah there's a there's like a commo- there's an understanding of commodity and, and mm-hmm. <laughs> is yeah you, you, he can get things with his precious metals um the, I, quest, precious metals are interesting the implication that that precious metals exist in this world is implies a whole lot of things i think yeah um i mean other than them being pretty they don't really ever like signify anything you know what the, are they uh, using i the, mean like what are they using these golden chalices for if not like a religious ceremony a, a, yeah a specifically <laughs> christian religious ceremony it's where jesus's blood goes like <laughs> it is it's really fascinating and i i, I have and I, what i'm thinking is is that because there's a church and there are church mice but the church mice are not described as being in any way religious 
are they are they the pastors of this church outside? They seem to just live in the church. Yeah, so is church but, just like a name for a structure, and the well, church mice are the people who live in that structure? The thing is, the, no, the structure is not called the church. It's called St. Ninian's Church. And there are saints. There's, is, yeah, I think there's did, at least another saint. Did anyone bother to look up St. Ninian? No. Who was St. Ninian? That's not a real saint. Just... My Catholic meter is not going off on that name, so like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't know anyone with that name. I don't think um, it's real. <laughs> man, fascinating. I'm looking it up right now. Who's okay. Saint Ninian? Okay. Well, here you go. Uh, is there a Ninian, Ninian is a Christian saint, first mentioned in the eighth century as being an early missionary among the Pictish peoples of what is now Scotland, um, the apostle of the Southern Picts. Um. I can't tell what he actually did, but Saint Ninian is a saint. Okay. I mean, maybe he was deeply lazy, and there is actually a Saint Ninian's church that he that, that he took his right, name like from. Right, like a watership down sort of thing where like human structures are kind of incorporated in. Except the church is still mouse sized. Is it? <laughs> Well, I, yeah, it's, it's, not, it, it's not consistent. This this <laughs> this church changes size between scenes very likely. I mean, I think the Abbey also does this. Yeah, with again, like they're they're walking up and down steps, and then it's a skyscraper's height, and there's right. a civilization up in the top. Right, they're going um, up and okay. So when they're figuring out the riddle, this really freaks me out. <laughs> like because like you know it says red wall up and down the red wall. Ugh, never mind. Um, but yeah, they're going up and down these seven steps. And the middle one is the special one that they can go inside. It's big enough for them to just take the step part away and go yeah. into it. What? It's just very hard to get a out. sense of scale of that. Like, I was picturing, like, maybe really long steps, like really deep steps, you know? Um, but then spelling out red wall on the wall would look really dumb because it would be like R and then 10 feet later E. Yeah. Well, I don't know. That might look okay. That's possible. Yeah. Like, they could be really big steps. But again, I, I, I feel like the geography of red wall is not a very um, coherent <laughs> coherent <laughs> thing. A, there is a, rich, a rich vein to discuss, yeah. but possibly there is, not. There uh, is a paragraph, right, where he sort of describes the internal geography of Redwall, and it's clear he had some idea where he says, well, they blocked off this corridor to do you know, sword-findy things, and so people have to go around right. to get to the dining hall. And it, yeah, you, you do get the sense that a lot of Redwall actually happens underground, that maybe the buildings are just basically where like the cloisters and the great hall are and a whole bunch of stuff is like yeah. down in the down in the cellars basically yeah the above ground stuff is where they do their definitely not religious ceremonies right right and, and the underground is where the blood sacrifices happen they have stained glass windows like oh yeah it's <laughs> So religious, like all of the iconography and these like huge hanging tapestries of Martin, and even just all of like the cover art. It's this like super like Arthurian Christian with light behind the heroes. Yeah, um, very much. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. It's, I mean the the entire narrative itself, like Matthias, is the resurrection of 
Martin the Warrior. Like, yeah. you know, it didn't happen three days later, but it's definitely, like, the return from beyond of a, a, a semi-religious character. The Christian iconography of this, like, that's... The basis of their spirituality is this sort of, like, watered-down um, version of just any Christian mythos. Yeah. Except it's, like, a warrior Christ, right? Right. This is... This is this is someone who set down his sword after a life of, of violence. It's I King think, David. Right? I'm sorry. Yeah, let me back up. Uh, yeah, it's it's not Jesus. It's, it's King, King David. David. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's, I mean, there's there's uh, scriptural references too to you know when Jesus comes back, he will come not bearing a shield but a sword. Yeah, but he's, he had a sword before. Yeah, in this one, in this <laughs> right? <he> was <laughs> um, and yeah, and then he, of course, he hunts Clooney down in his dreams. Yeah, um, and in a he very... also apparently at one point just like possesses Cornflower because Cornflower as the female lead in this, um, or as as the romantic interest is just, and they actually refer to Cornflower several times as just a body, which I thought was really <laughs> <Right>? interesting. <laughs> they were just like, "That's a great body for you, dude," and I was like, "She's a mouse." Um, we're sexualizing a mouse in a really weird way, but also totally removing agency by just calling her a body. (laughs) And it happened like three or four times, I noticed. Like, they'll refer to her as that. Um, but yeah, she, she gets possessed by Martin at one point to hand Matthias a handkerchief. And it's supposed to be like a touching romantic moment between the two of them. But then once it's over, Matthias goes, oh... That was Martin acting through Cornflower, and it's like, wait, what? <laughs> right, <laughs> horrifying. <laughs> I, man, that is horrifying. Like, just all of her agency is gone. When she needs to be a healer, yeah. she's a healer. When she needs to burn some shit down, she's there to do that. Like, but even the burning is not. She's not granted any real heroism. She throws it in sort of this like acts like this accidental terror. Yeah, she's right. a, a, a reflex reaction. action. Right. Yeah, it's and and it's kind of a. Again, like a joke on the rats, where it's like, ha ha ha, you were defeated by this. Yeah, and so by like the this accident. I where I really want to go into a giant feminist rant about what an asshole Brian Jack is. He's not uh, because there's please uh, do though. There's, no, well, I mean, look at Constance because Constance, <laughs> yeah. Constance whips. She's like, yeah. Constance you know, is she's a, a full character. She's a total badass. She actually saves the Abbey more than anybody else does. Um, yep. Yeah, she does way more than Matthias does. Yeah, she has. She, I, well, and and to to add to that, so are Warbeak and Guasim, uh, mm-hmm. who for some reason is named after the organization yeah. she's in. Yeah. They never really. And then also Logalog, like the two is, are the two named shrews, both just named after like broad shrew. I guess you get a limited number of shrew words. Yeah, so but I mean, you do, and have, and you do have some pretty you do have some pretty strong female characters in this, and I would add Seal of the Fox also. Um, demonstrates a, a remarkable amount of agency inside of the story where everybody else yeah. is just kind of following a track. Right, but the 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 female characters that actually do have agency and have, like, developed characteristics of personality um, are also completely desexualized. And it's, yeah. like, in introducing right. sexuality where, like, they become that, that just becomes the whole of the female character's personality in Cornflower. And so I think yep. it's really interesting the way that like he actually handles gender because he has to he has to separate or he has to at least like you know he has to sacrifice um, personality traits in favor of you know eventual companionship for a main character and you have to yeah. ask yourself like why did he actually do that um, mm. is it because he doesn't have like 
a very serious regard for female sexuality. Um, is it necessarily mm. that? Or is it just that he's trying to follow like some sort of uh, formula that children can easily comprehend? Like, like where can we actually make sacrifices for uh, gender analysis within Renwall? Um, and I think, I think basically it is that, like, uh, it just, it, it sort of she comes ends up down. Being the, she ends up being the Guinevere of the story where she's, uh, not so much a, a character with agency in her own right, so much as she's a receptacle for kind of that, that latent desire inside of the story. I would say Guinevere gets, well, not to get into my, my Arthurian Go for it, dude. thing, but I feel like, I feel like Guinevere gets more actually has more agency in that ultimately and that she's sort of forced into a marriage with Arthur but but ultimately chooses to the detriment of everybody genuinely chooses Lancelot right um, in this like totally destructive way and Lancelot is also makes this choice that is totally destructive to everything that was that was built but but she is given well I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking more of some of the reimaginings of the Arthurian legend like the the th white stuff yeah, yeah. sure um, but she's given a lot of she's given a lot of agency in that and I think it's you can find that in the text to some extent. So I think um, it's, I mean, I do think that the, the divide between like personhood and sexuality as, mm-hmm. as, as characters is really interesting. Cause it's not something that I can really like off the top of my head, really hark to and be like, it's the same somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Usually it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, I mean, like stereotypically you'll have, uh, women who do have personalities that are entirely just negative female traits, but those don't actually happen here. You have female characters that have um, broad positive traits that can be like either masculine or negative, uh, or mm-hmm. masculine um, or feminine. Um, and there's a certain amount of gender neutrality um, to the characters. Yeah, like like with Constance, she's the strongest person at Redwall. Um, and yeah. it's not, she's not really called husky. It's not, you know, she's not unfeminine. It's just an aspect of her is that she has great strength. Um, right. which I just, I don't know. What do we think? What do we think of Jess, of Jess the squirrel? Oh, Jess the I think it's interesting because she's the, I think she's one of the only other, maybe the only other, aside from the, the church mice, which are not really fleshed out in any way, but like one of the only characters who's actually in an existing relationship. Right. Um, so she's married to her husband, who's kind of a cipher. He doesn't really have any role in the, in the story. He's yeah, not he's nearly just, as good of a He's just Mr. Squirrel, yeah. basically. Yeah. 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 Which is, which is really interesting. And then she has her sort of, her very, like very close relationship with, with our, with our hair. Um, which is interesting to me. I th- um, Perhaps okay. I think you do have to make the joke. <laughs> I have, I've got to make. I've got to make the joke. <laughs> I think you do too. I was. I was just suggesting that I think that while the husband does very little in this, Jess clearly has this real rapport with the hair. They do a lot of things together. They both celebrate each other. He says. Not, I think he says like very complimentary things about her climbing and her body. Um. Not in like a sexual way, but the, sec- the sexuality in the book is very—it's um, muted. It's very muted anyway. It's dead. There's none of it. Oh, it's it's. it's <laughs> oh no, it's there. There's that one. There's that one euphemism, the the, the tail tangling, which we're actually never going to mention again. Never never using that phrase again in my life. I don't think that was the actual euphemism, but I'm definitely going to tweet it. I'm going to go back and look, and I'll, I'll put it up on the Twitter. You could also not. 
<laughs> yeah, they, I mean, like, yeah. they do have they have, they have a friendship that in uh, mm-hmm. you know maybe a, a young adult novel even it would be yes. kind of implied that uh, yeah. there's something else happening there, but because you know in the way that these that he wrote this narrative, like he has simple solutions for any sort of issue and it's because yeah. you can't think too deeply about it it's this is just a story about some mice like yeah and a yeah. couple of weird animals so there's not sexual attention because sexual attention nope. just doesn't exist no right. there's just there's just two people who are right for each other and are just aware of that there's awkwardness though there's discomfort i think they do they blush there's a little there's a little bit of discomfort which is almost puts it in in young adult territory Right. Where Matthias is uncomfortable being near court. And it's very brief. It's just like, a, it, it, it's, it's very much targeted at like a 10 or 11 year old who's just oh, yeah. maybe felt that once in their life. And it's like, oh, wow, that's what that is. I'm going to marry the person who I felt that with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Blushing definitely happens in the story. Yeah. It's like you, you blush to the, to the tips of your whiskers or to the, to the tips of your ears or to the tip of your tail or whatever. <laughs> Which, again, is not like clearly translated. He does not. <laughs> no. He does not go into the mechanics of the, the sort of the, the isomorphism between our world and theirs. Right. There's <laughs> oh, animals man. can blush, and and that reminds me too. There was a there was a point where, um, so Ambrose Spike mm-hmm. is the hedgehog who kind of hangs out. Yeah. And at one point he says, uh, "Ambrose Spike almost literally bristled." And I was like, why didn't you go with literally bristled? He's a hedgehog. Yeah, he can bristle. That's the thing about him. <laughs> it's one of his major characteristics. It is kind of his, also, his sole characteristic, actually. Yeah, he bristles also, things. Also, Brian Jake seems to have confused hedgehogs with porcupines. Uh, because, like, you can touch a hedgehog. They're, yeah, well, I mean, they're he spiky, rolls up. but they're not. He rolls up, he, though, which porcupines he, don't really do to the same extent. No, that's true, but nobody can touch him or get close to him because they'll get spines in their yeah. hands. So that's a porcupine. Oh thing. yeah, there's no spines in their hands. It's yeah. this. In fact, in the in the climactic battle, uh, <laughs> Silent Sam, uh, our our uh, like squirrel yes. champion, uh, is rolling him around, uh, like guiding him with a stick, like yeah, poking is... him into hordes of enemies this and is like Barack weapon of war. Right, and he he might be like knocking guys over, but they're not like you know dying from it. They're just getting bowled over. I think we could we can safely say in this world that hedgehogs or edge pigs have different. Does he use the word edge pigs in this yet? I'm trying uh, to yeah, yeah, yeah. The the mole, the, the mole, mole says, uh, "Oi, zur edge pig, zur edge pig." Um. But yeah, they 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 have different characteristics than the hedgehogs in our world. Right. Um, much like the Clooney who has a prehensile tail. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah. Which is really honestly my favorite bits of prose were pretty much all the Clooney bits. I love I love Clooney like lashing out. Oh, and, he's great. And just his his just pure villainy. Um <laughs> And he's given, I think, far more interiority than basically any other character. Well, he's motivated uh, by his dreams. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. 
He has dreams and he hides things from people and he thinks about other people's motivations in a way that he's got like a theory of mind. I don't know if any of the other characters have a theory of mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. He's he's constantly kind of second guessing his own lieutenants and Mm -hmm. you know like I'm not I'm gonna wait until after the battle to promote people because I know that all of my like maybe lieutenants are going to be vying for glory on the battlefield and they're going to try to distinguish themselves. So I'm going to hold off on that. Um, Mm -hmm. His, his wartime strategy leaves something to be desired, (laughs) but uh, at least the way that he runs his organization is pretty smart. I mean, there's an illustration in my book that um, I, at the start of a chapter that I thought was awesome where like, so it's when Sela is trying to steal their battle plans and um, it's when they have the battering ram and they're going to go through the front. But um, and that's the the battle tactic that they give to Sela that he gives to Sela to like go give to that so that she can go be a traitor with it and um, right. give it to the abbot. And in this drawing, there's like dotted lines and like an X at the door. And then there's another <laughs> dotted line that goes around at the back of the abbey. And there's an X over there where they're going to dig the tunnel. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's, I mean, he's very sneaky. He's very sly. And he, and he tricks the Fox. He, he sort of outthinks the Fox. He has the, he knows that his rat lieutenants won't notice the map, but only she will notice the map. And she's mm-hmm. going to make a copy of the map and replace it. Yeah, I think he's like one of the few characters who really has this very coherent representation of other people's, you know, consciousness in his head. <laughs> Everyone else just kind of does things. Yeah, and he's also the yeah. only person who has like like thought about the future. Everybody else is just sort of like, well, when is the next attack coming? They don't know necessarily what it's going to be, but they're not like predicting like, oh, here's how things are going to fall out in succession after these events take place. But he does. He's like... Uh, you know, he has goals set for what happens after the battles. And, um, you know, everybody else in the Abbey, at least, is just like, well, then we're going to eat a feast. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's true. Uh, in, in this whole book, most of the characters just adhere to uh, a trope. And then you've got a few people who kind of stand out as being, uh, like, not necessarily trope breaking, but at least doing something inside of the the role that they've been set to. Clooney is one of them. Um, I while we were talking about uh, female uh, interiority and uh, agency, Dunwing, who's mm. uh, who's uh, Warbeak's mother, uh, who's like the she's the the chief's sister in law, like prince princess regent, I guess. Yeah. Of of the Sparrow people, like, she also seems to know way more than she ever talks about. And it comes out in some surpri- some surprising ways where, you know, Matthias finally admits to her, like, actually, I'm here for the sword. And she's like, yeah, dummy, I know you're here for the sword. Yeah. That whole, the whole Sparrow arc is really bizarre because it's it's kind of bleak in a way in that there's like a moral grayness to Matthias having this sentient being on like a leash for right. how for a chapter or so and he realizes that he did wrong and he mm-hmm. says I will never put a leash on another another creature and there's really no other like none of the other good characters have like a moral quandary that they navigate right except I guess the the the, the mouse who betrays them at the end right 
Who oh, opens right. the gate. Yeah, the poor, uh, what, what's it, Plumpkin. <laughs> poor Plumpkin. Just terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, gets put in an awful position. You can't really blame him for the thing that he did, but I, you also can because he probably could have told them. Yeah, this is what's going on, and you know, let's. But I mean, they they would have come up with a a very pat, you know, just so plan to yeah. to deal with that threat as well. But in the context of the story, Plumpkin also is not a being with agency. He is a he is a tool of Clooney. There's a, there's a handful of characters who actually have some influence over their surroundings and Plumkin right. is not one of them <laughs> mainly mainly silent sam who just like shows up out of nowhere uh helps literally everything he touches uh comes up with the plan to fill up the drum with the the wasp the hornet's nest and throw it down on the battering ram um mm-hmm. yeah silent sam he's great he's good. I, I mean i think the whole squirrel family is just really wonderful and i'm kind of rethinking my my infidelity thing. <laughs> I was going to say, except for the cuck, no, Mr. Squirrel. I think it's actually, I think it's actually a really wholesome, like poly relationship where Mr. Squirrel is happy <laughs> with his wife having extramarital relations. I, I, yeah. I think it's very like Mr. Squirrel is not absent when, um, Basil is like ogling his wife, but he, and he's still, he doesn't change his affect. He doesn't change his demeanor. He's just yeah. still himself. He still loves his wife. He's still friends with the hair. Basil Stag hair isn't going to be a threat to their relationship because he's a he's an avowed bachelor. Like mm-hmm. he makes a big deal about how he's a bachelor who can't be tied down. You know, yeah. which is again really funny because there's no like it, 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 it's it's so funny how he how he he pulls in these tropes without really thinking about what they mean in the context of the story. <laughs> like right. he's a bachelor. What is this? What does this mean? <laughs> he's not a sexual being. He's not described as a sexual being within the context of the story. What I mean, he, just, he clearly just wanted to have, like, a hair that is um, an autonomous creature that doesn't have any, like, real obligations to family members outside of himself individually. And so he just sort of, like, just explains that away by, like, oh, he's just a bachelor. Like, that's it. He's, he's, just, he's right. just the one hair that's around. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and we're going to learn more about that as it goes along, too, because we know from future books that we haven't covered mm-hmm. on the show yet that the hares are actually their own separate type of society yeah. uh, that doesn't show up in this. So, But it's implied to have, in this, right? And it's, it, it's it's implied because he's got the, the, the idea of, like, military hierarchy. Yeah. Isn't he – is the – I'm trying to remember if the Long Patrol is mentioned. I, I Maybe I'm just manufacturing this. But I kind of feel like the Long Patrol is He at least mentions that he used... No, he doesn't say the Long Patrol, but he does talk about when I used to work with this wing of uh, mm. some sort of patrollers at some point. He doesn't say the Long Patrol. Yeah. It's some other branch of that military. But, yeah. Um, you know, going back to the, like, T.H. White thing, you know, you've got... Uh, effectively, Clooney is um, the force majeure... Um, like the biggest, uh, whatever the pike in the pond yes. gets to rule. Uh, Redwall Abbey is something like what Arthur wanted the wanted Camelot to run like. Yeah. Um, where it's like there's a hierarchy, but it's mostly democratically decided based mm-hmm. on captaincy and uh, uh, you know, like proof of valor. Uh, and then you've got the the Guasim who are something like the wild birds who just, like, share a commons and everybody just kind of agrees to these rules. 
Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of TH White that comes out in this too, and and the the lessons that Arthur has to learn from Merlin about different types of government. Yeah, except Jake's just sidesteps the problems. Right, like, yeah. like the ultimate the ultimate failures of the. No, of he just the he just picked his favorite like, one, and that's actually, what the story is about. It's like yeah. actually the roundtable was good, and <laughs> there was nothing wrong with it. Um, the seeds of its destruction. Well, I mean, I guess also because like part of the point. Of course, this this isn't this isn't a th white podcast. This is a rebel podcast. But <laughs> but part of the point of the th white books is that there's sort of the sins of the father get passed down. And Arthur is unable to escape the sins of his, of, of his father, and that and that right. undermines his work ultimately. Well, and there's not that here, right? right there's no like, original that. sin. You get well, yeah. you get past that completely because, like, you know, the the lineage that we're that's really discussed is between Martin and Matthias, and yeah. Martin has no bad qualities. He did he's zero a righteous sins. Warrior. Yeah, he's just yeah, a righteous well, warrior. Great he did guy. Violence. But it was right. Yes. And then, at, you know, in creating the Order of Redwall, they <laughs> set down their swords and shields and said, we will only fight defensively forever. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, uh, so the, the Redwall people are more like uh, anarcho-capitalists, right? No, they, they, what? They, they, adhere to no. The, they adhere to the non-aggression principle above, <laughs> above everything. No, 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 no. They're like, I mean, they're just sort of like the ideal, like, liberal monarchy. Like, this sort of idea of, like, you right. know, which you have, like, this pluralistic society, which kind of just is, and every, like, individual in it has these, like, very exaggerated strong points, and these, like, cultures within it have these very exaggerated strengths and very exaggerated weaknesses, and they all contribute to sort of this wise ruler who's willing to step down when he needs to, is willing to, you know, bestow power on those who, um, on, on, on those he trusts and then can retrieve the power once the emergency is over. And of course, everyone immediately relinquishes their power. Yeah, sure. Uh, and also abject poverty exists outside of our bubble, just literally outside of our, yeah, our walls. Right. But through, yeah. the, through the benevolence of the central government, they're able to, to sort of, like help out everyone in the way that a church would necessarily, mm-hmm. but like, you know, that's the only form of government here. Yeah. Cause I don't think everyone is everyone within Redwall a, is it sort of explicitly stated that they're a member of an order at the start of the book? Cause of course it gets confused when a bunch of more people come in, but there's like brother Ambrose is Matthias a brother. Matthias he's is a, a, he's, he's a novice. novice. He's a he's novice. A, so there's like a yeah. hierarchy here. And this is how people get into Redwall. Is is the badger uh, Constance? Is no, Constance, she's not Sister Constance. She's just Constance. she's just Constance. Yeah, she's just there. Yeah, she um, just lives in that. Mm, I have, she's just there to kick ass and take names. She's not. Yeah, she's not just, part of any hierarchy. Yeah, which is also a weird thing when they haven't. They apparently have not been threatened by any kind of force in like a hundred years. Yeah. Um, so why would you have? I mean, she's basically the bouncer. Yeah. It seems like she has other duties too. Like you know, at the beginning of the book, she takes home the cornflower, or she takes home cornflower's family. Oh, that's and right. She pulls the cart. She pulls the cart, <laughs> which is a small cart. It's 
What size card card. is this? (laughs) And then it falls into a ditch and somehow hides from a large horse-drawn cart with a horse-sized horse in it. They get run off the road. This is not a duck-sized horse that we're talking about here. (laughs) Would you rather find 200 rat-sized horses? Um, I, I'm gonna. I, we've got to wrap up, you guys. Yeah. We've been yeah, going yeah. for a long time. Um, I, I think uh, each of us should have like one final thought if we haven't done it before we get into the food stuff that Melly's gonna lead us through. Yes. Uh, my final thought was: Did you get the sense that Squire Julian, uh, the the cat that Matthias runs into, is sort of gay coded? What? No, mm. I didn't notice that. He's hmm. he's pretty effete. Hmm. I feel like it, hmm. maybe. I I really don't feel like that's a con- that's a conscious decision on Jake's part. Um, it, I, th- it might be I think it's I, I think it's more harmful if it's unconscious on Jake's part. <laughs> yeah, but I think that that's the case. I don't think I think I think Jake's has sort of portrayed this effete um, aristocrat. And, and that's and, and, and the okay, but he's not just an effete aristocrat. He's an effete aristocrat who talks about how he'll never take a mate, and his best friend is another guy. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I I don't think it's an I, I yeah maybe I'm wrong. I I just think that like you know he hit delete on sexuality in the book because it's for yeah. children, and so in order to flesh out that character and. You know, the personality traits that could be interpreted in that way because there's no sexuality in the narrative at all. I, I don't know if, if Jake's is that is that conscious. Is yeah. that is that consciously like I, th- I think he's writing out of his own I think he's writing out of his own stereotypes, his own uh Yeah. Uh, what's the, the word, the the implicit biases uh that he comes to the story with. And I think that consciously or unconsciously Julian Gingivir, who uh, we're going to meet one of his uh, ancestors, or actually all of his ancestors, in the next book that we read, uh, which is really right. fun. Um, <laughs> who and and I assume it doesn't have the same. I can't remember it well. I assume it doesn't have the same relationship to human habitation that Julian does, where he's a barnyard cat. Right, no, no, yeah. <laughs> no. In fact, uh, we, yeah, we'll we'll come back around to that because I think his ancestor built the barn, so maybe it was like a wildcat-sized barn, not a human-sized barn. That's fascinating retconning. It's yeah, that's it's really pretty strange. That's <laughs> great. <It's> <laughs> <laughs> so that's my final thought, uh, Melly. What's yours? I'm gonna do food. Skip me. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, I just want to say I love the I love the Esmodia stuff. It really pulls on like it's so clearly lord of the ringsy with them <laughs> walking by the sleeping snake it's exactly like smaug it mm-hmm. is and he's sort of pulling the treasure out um and eventually and the snake gets snake doesn't exactly get struck in its weak spot but there's like this final confrontation i i, I love the whole yeah i, I love the, the snake lurking in the background of the whole book Esmodius is a is a really interesting choice of name too because that goes back to Kabbalistic uh, like demonology, yeah. you know. Like Esmodius is the name of one of the minor princes of hell. Yeah, it's 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 really bizarre because he he draws on all of these, like he draws on all this stuff without really like getting into the implications or consequences of it. Esmodius is 
very much not demonic. It's just, it's just a really big spooky snake. Um, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna pull a Clooney. Uh, just tell you guys you can you can take it or leave it. But I'm totally calling this episode uh, "Rock Me Asmodeus." Oh man, oh, fine. <laughs> I'll allow it. We should we should have talked more about the snake, really, for that to be for that to be totally fitting. But yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, do snakes reappear? I'm pretty sure there's 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 a, there's a snake in one of the in the, the later books also. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, okay. what else do you want to say about the snake, Sam? I mean, let's uh, let's talk about it while we got the time to talk about it. I I just I, I I like that it's this that there's this there's this thing lurking in the woods that makes the woods dangerous in yeah. a way that the because in a sense the way it handles predators it sort of takes away the danger of the of the woods. People like the mice don't don't seem to be afraid. Like wandering around or going home or right or, or living in these spaces. Yeah, Basil at one point talks about how he found a like a goshawk, uh, like pinned under a tree, mm-hmm. and he let it go. Uh, but it was it was a an, like a gentleman's agreement that you won't try to kill me because I'm helping you. And you have the same thing with the with um, with the owl too, um, right? But this this snake, which is just there and is eating the things as they and, and is eating the rats as they die. Yeah, um, it's just the it's the force of nature out there. It's yeah. the, I mean, he's he is, and, and in fact, it, it, sorry, he is the embodiment of mortality yes. in this story, and in fact, explicitly says so. Where yes. he says, you know, like when he's hypnotizing his victims, he says, you know, just like watch my eyes, I will show you oblivion. Yeah, it's it's really it's really intense, and he's not he's like one of the few characters who just doesn't have like any personality, doesn't have any. He says his um, name a lot. That's a personality. He does say his name. <laughs> yeah, he's like like in the I love the in between chapter parts where you just you know you see him picking up one of the dead bodies of a rat or something, <laughs> and he's just like going through the woods saying his name a lot like, <laughs> right yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's the Steve Holt of this story <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I, I just I just love it because it's really it's honestly one of the better pieces of narrative work in this story I think yeah it ties everything together like yeah it's running throughout the whole thing and it's something that is that is just this total enemy that we see that we see is this absolutely terrifying thing that t- takes down all of these really horrifying rats and villains and it's horrifying to confront it we see we see Guasim who tragically dies one of our one of our named characterized female characters who gets like bitten and murdered very quickly rip Guasim rip Guasim was pretty cool um, yeah no they yeah the shrews rule but yeah this and this this snake which is finally defeated and the most dramatic like Clooney's like the fight with Clooney is like very is, is drawn out right um, and eventually he sort of tricks Clooney with his word and drops the bell on him but the moment where he kills Osmodius is probably the most like dramatically intense he's like saying yeah. for Redwall for all of these things for right. all the things I value it's not yeah. like Clooney he, he struck for Redwall he struck for freedom he struck against <laughs> Asmodeus he struck against Clooney and his horde he struck for life yeah yeah yeah. it's all this it's all this shit and, and he's not which doesn't come into Clooney Clooney is not like a thematic fight he just fights Clooney right and Clooney right. gets a bell dropped on him it's not like yeah. oh Clooney is 
Um, like this part of the Clooney fight symbolizes this thing, except I guess Clooney's that ultimately Matthias is a little more flexible in his honor than Clooney thinks he is. Um, and that, that brings us back around to the, the symbology of the sword mm-hmm. about how, you know, Matthias is most of what Matthias does in this entire book has to do with solving the riddles, going on the quest. He's trying to get the sword back. And then once he actually fights the, the named bad guy of the book, like the sword is ancillary to that. It, yeah. it, it, he could he could be using any sword at that point. Well, it's about the it's like I mean the the sword and the quest involving the sword is like the spark to the overall narrative of the Redwall series, and it's the yeah. thing that's like coursing through all of it. That's this supernatural destiny element to it, and. One thing that I think is really interesting about choosing a snake is, like, in Greek mythology specifically, the, the snake is sort of, um, it's symbolic of the earth and reality and the things that keep you tied to the earth. Hmm. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, it's neither good nor evil. It's just the, the instance of harsh reality. And so I think that, like, you know, it... it the the symbology of the snake, like, obviously goes through everything. There's, you know, it becomes yeah. dragons later. Um, but... We've been talking about Asmodeus as though he's like this evil being when he's really not that. He's 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 uh, symbolic of the mundane nature of the Earth itself surrounding the rats of Redwall, and you have to beat and kill that mundaneness, um, that mundanity, in order to have this heroic adventure take place um, and to have this like coursing dramatic destiny narrative. I think there's. I think it's really interesting because there's kind of two. He's he's kind of trying to have his cake and eat it when it comes to the destiny and the sword thing, because on the because it's there's of course the whole sword quest, but it's it's quite explicit when he talks to I think it's Julian and Julian says it's just a sword, right? It's not it's not magical. It's a nice sword. I've seen nice swords like it. Right. Um, it's not going to save the day. Um, and so it, it, it very much that that whole sort of final scene is kind of like the real the real sword was the the shrews we met along the way. Well, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right because because that's literally what saves the day is yeah. the real the real sword was the friends we met along the way because what ends up saving Redwall is the Gawasim and the Sparrow people. Yeah. Uh, who all come to the aid of Redwall because Matthias has gone on these quests and met them. So, mm-hmm. you know, the sword ends up just being the, it's, it's the, uh, it's, ah, what's the, the word? MacGuffin. The, uh, the MacGuffin. Yeah. The sword <laughs> is the MacGuffin that motivates Matthias to actually find like, what yeah. is heroic? Well, I think the message of the book is that what's heroic is trying to help people. And mm-hmm. when you help them, they help you back, and they may end up saving your, you know, saving your bacon at the last moment. And also, you should have the spirit of an ancient warrior cursing through your body. Yeah, that, helps it, too. It, it, that, that does that help. Helps. Maybe not necessary, but it helps a bit. It, it does. It's what it's what lets him kill Asmodeus in the end, right? Because because Martin <laughs> says like it, it it gives him these sort of moments of supernatural ability because right. he is able to shake off the serpent's hypnotism. Because we considered that Matthias might just be epileptic. No, because everybody else no. experiences it too. They hear he possesses like, cornflower. He possesses cornflower and gives. Does he possess her? Which is very strange. That's I mean, he just 
it's not. I, I took that more as a metaphor that like mm-hmm. Matthias is like, oh, like I was praying to Martin, and then Cornflower came and was nice to me and like bucked up my spirit. I feel like there That's was a there was a cosmology. sentence that definitively said like, um, oh, thank you, Martin, for answering me. I'm glad we spoke or something like that. Like, yeah, but is that is that to be taken literally or just metaphorically? I'm taking like, it literally. He was looking for a sign. He was looking yeah. for a sign, and Cornflower came up and did the Cornflower thing where she was nice to him and, like, made him feel wanted and, mm-hmm. and strong. And he was like, that's the answer to my prayers. I just needed... I just needed a girl to be nice Which to me. Which is very interesting, again, in the cosmology that's... Either we take it that Martin possessed Cornflower and is, like, sort of your, your commoner garden remnant of a pre-existing mouse or Martin has become this like cosmic deity who <laughs> works in mysterious ways. I think where that's you can it. ask for something from him and things incidentally move and it's his will moving them. Um, yeah, it's not consistent. I don't, I don't like Mar- Martin, the watchmaker. <laughs> yes. Oh no, I don't like that at all. Actually, I think that's the title of the episode now. Sorry. <laughs> We need to go on to Melly's big takeaway, her final thoughts on the book. Um, okay, so obviously I'm here for food specifically. Um, and this book, you know, the first one that he wrote, he doesn't really get into like, he's not as like cool about food as he is later. Because there's just like the one feast in here, right? Um, and it's at the very beginning and they catch fish, which I think is really interesting because like, um, the the diet of the Redwall people is pescatarian, which I will agree is the best one because that's my diet as well. <laughs> um, and uh, they in in their prayer over their meal that they have at the feast, I think it's interesting because they ask, they explicitly say that they ask the fish to give them what they need, um, and that's as opposed to you know the evil. Clooney who talks he demands meat from people and it's like you don't really know what the meat is supposed to be like I think he says beef maybe um so there's he does say beef at one point there's also the implication that the uh uh the dormice that they catch yeah like maybe he says do not eat them he says yeah very 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 orcishly like you know looks like meat's back on the menu boys but it's not (laughs) because he needs them for hostages so there's, yeah, there's an element of cannibalism that I think is implicit in both of those. Like, in one of them, it's a consensual cannibalism, which, <laughs> I mean, if you're asking fish and they give you fish and then you take it to the fryer and the fryer is like, wow, they really blessed us today, those fish. Like, <laughs> There's a battle with the fish, though. Yeah. That's described. Um, <laughs> so the, and he... I mean, again, like, he gets better about describing different feasts and um, the the different foods that they eat. Uh, in this book, we basically just have the big one at the beginning and then casual mentions of how vegetable soup will heal you when you need it. Um, and chestnuts, <laughs> obviously. And I think that's sure. awesome because chestnuts are great, um, you know, in contemporary real-life society. Uh, one thing that's really weird about chestnuts is that eventually, like, the reason that they're not popular now isn't because they don't grow in abundance. It's because it was sort of cast off as this lower-class poverty food. Um, oh, yeah. By wasps, mostly. <laughs> and um, 
that so like chestnuts kind of fell out of favor culinarily, but now they're kind of having a bounce back right now, which I think is really awesome. Like I, I know exactly where to go to actually find chestnuts so that I can make candy chestnuts, which yeah. in this story are currency. <laughs> um, it's basically like, I, I'm not entirely sure how they go about candying them. I believe it's probably whole. They probably blanch them and then they probably like bake them. Um, sure. And uh, and I'm assuming with honey and maybe... So this is the really interesting thing about like what I have to sort of intuit about the food is basically they live in a medieval agrarian society and so they're not going to have abundance of spice. Um, they already said that their sweetness of things comes from it's either going to be molasses, but they don't really talk about that. They have a, a symbiotic relationship with bees who they can speak to. Um, yeah, yeah, the the bee folk. Like, is there? It, I I don't think that there is a book about the bee folk of Redwall, which, which is uh, a major oversight. That would be a cool story. That's where they get their wax from, and that's also where they get all of their honey from. And so he, yeah. there's, you know, they talk about milk and honey as, I mean, just like a, a general snack. Um, they'll eat. I think at one point, uh, Matthias is having like a snack of. Uh, it's, he says goat's milk because he hasn't adjusted the whole like where does milk come from if we don't have cows thing um, oh, right. <laughs> and uh, with nuts and honey and oh yeah we didn't record any of that did we we were talking about you know another aspect of the size thing is like do they have a goat is it a mouse sized goat is it a full sized goat right and in an interview like Jake says that they don't they don't have like dairy animals um the way that they get all their dairy to create yogurts and cheeses and creams they talk about heavy cream a great deal it's like mm-hmm. milk sap from a plant <laughs> um mm. and that's just sort of the way that he explains away like not having cattle <laughs> yeah he clearly it's, meant it's the-, the perfect the perfect vegan dairy alternative that we don't the, have in this world. The greatest of all time, milk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, um, and it's actually a, it's actually heavy cash rules everything around me that they're <laughs> that they're drinking. So, so based on just like an assumption that you can make, I mean, there there's a description of of what their fields look like. They've got orchards that have stone fruit, um, specifically like drucots and which are like plums um and they've got cherries um they had mulberries and strawberries also they had wild strawberries and you know then the their other like sort of close like their personal farm is going to have things like cabbage which they talk about and root vegetables are going to be huge carrots potatoes and parsnips um and they have wheat. They talk about uh, yeah. going out and like threshing the wheat at one point. Right. And then also because they have chestnuts, you can assume that they're eating chestnut meal bread, which doesn't rise, but it's still like it was a very popular bread that fed people constantly. Um, sure. So uh, those are the things that I'm mostly going to be working with. Um, obviously, not really any spices because there's no new world. Um, and uh it's going to rely heavily on um, things like tarragon and sage and majorum is another one. Um, basically herbs that can be preserved by drying um, because they wouldn't have grown so much in the winter months. 
and then garlic, chives, things like that to add flavor to sure. boost things. So um, Also, anything you can get from Portugal, apparently. I guess. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> Does the whole peninsula of Iberia exist, or is it just a, a It's just there? Portugal. <laughs> there is no Spain, Portugal's dream. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like so that's basically what I'm going to be cooking with. Um, the idea that I had for this one is... is the big feast in the very beginning that Friar Hugo comes up with is um, this very lavish fish dish. Um, there's roasted; it's served with it with um, roasted root vegetables. There's a like green salad that goes around also, but the big centerpiece is this fish that agreed to be eaten. Um, and he lists off all of the things that he wants to put in it at the very beginning, and everybody tells him how awesome it is. But he wants cream and butter. And he wants herbs and, like, thyme, rosemaries in it. I don't believe that he says tarragon, but basically what I'm going to do is try and figure out what Friar Hugo Hugo did. And I'm going to probably poach uh, some freshwater whitefish, like, probably, like, I'll get trout or something. And um, poach that in some heavy cream and butter with a lot of tarragon and maybe some sage and rosemary and thyme. And I'll let you guys know how it turns out. And I'll also roast some vegetables and probably like a, um, in honey and maybe like a little bit of garlic in it. So with sea salt. It sounds wonderful. Uh, I want to remind our listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in for our very first episode here. Uh, But if you become a Patreon subscriber at the $5 level, you will get Melly's recipe that she cooks uh, based on the based on each of the books that we're reading, um, so that's a little bonus for you. Uh, thank you to all of our already patrons. It's amazing how many people came out to support this project even before the project came out. So we hope you're happy with the with the product. If you are, tell your friends. And also let us know. Yeah, tell yeah, us what absolutely. you think of the first book. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe we missed something. And if you if you hate it, like DM me and I can toss and turn at night. Um, the knowledge <laughs> that internet people don't like me. <laughs> oh no! Should, should we do a little uh, uh, letting people know where to find us? I mean, obviously, if you're listening to the show, you're probably already following the show at the Redwall Pod on Twitter. Um, and we've made some good Redwall-related friends on there, so we've been retweeting them, too, so go and check that out. Our Patreon link is there also. Uh, I'm Matthew, and I'm on Twitter at MattTheGoit with a W, Sam. I'm Sam, and I'm on Twitter at MartyRooster. And Melly? Um, I'm Melly, and I'm on Twitter at West. This has been a lot of fun, Melly, Sam. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we'll see you all next month for uh, Moss Flower, the next book in the series. All right. Yeah.